fat switch. All right, so today we're going to do upper GI and esophagus and stomach, which is considered the upper GI tract. The lower GI tract is intestines and intestines. And then we have sometimes what's called the accessory GI organs, which are liver and pancreas and gallbladder. All right, so we're going to start with upper GI. The first thing we're going to talk about is dysphagia or dysphagia. Now, the etiology of dysphagia, um, three basic things, obstructions, achalasia, and functional dysphagia. The first one, obstructions, can happen either inside the esophagus or outside the esophagus. Things that can happen inside include esophageal tumors, strictures, which is when you just have a narrowing of the esophagus, and then herniations, uh, where you've got a tear in the um, esophagus, or weak spot. In extrinsic are tumors that are outside the esophagus that push inwards, ascites, which is an accumulation of fluid in the abdomen, just puts pressure on the esophagus, and then morbid obesity. What is morbid obesity? Say again? Greater than 100 pounds overweight is one definition. Um, another one is like BMI, I think it's... No, 30 is obesity. Greater than 30 is obesity for BMI. But greater, I think it's 40 or 45 is morbid obesity, yes. What we're talking about is someone who's got so much extra weight that the weight is literally closing up their esophagus. Now, other things can happen from morbid obesity, like that weight can prevent you from expanding the chest and ventilating properly. Those people are at risk for atelectasis and pneumonia. But in this case, we're talking about obstructions of the esophagus. It takes longer for them to eat, which probably isn't a bad thing for them. Now, there's another, there's another um, etiology which is called achalasia. Achalasia is the lower esophageal sphincter dysfunction. Now, where's your esophageal sphincter, the LES? Point to it on yourself. Find your sternum, the very bottom of it. That's pretty much where it is. So remember, your diaphragm lives right about here. And where the, uh, where the esophagus pierces the diaphragm, that's the exact spot where your sphincter lives. And then so below that you have stomach. Question? Sphincter. Now, if the lower esophageal sphincter does not open up properly, guess what happens to food that you eat? It sticks there. So what will happen is, depending on the amount of, of um, obstruction, sometimes what a patient will do is they'll eat something, and then sometimes you'll feel them go, you'll look at them, they'll go, and they'll kind of like tap on their, on their chest, and they're trying to get that food to move on down. They can feel it. It feels like there's something stuck there, and then it goes away. What some patients will do is they'll eat, and they'll eat, and they'll eat, and they have to get enough weight in that little tunnel before the weight of it just goes, whoop, and it all goes through. That's called building a food bolus. <laughs> kind of, yes. So have you, ever, have you ever swallowed a pill that was a little too big, and then it felt like it was still in the back of your throat? That's kind of like what it feels like to them, but it's in their chest. 
Now, what will happen sometimes in achalasia is as patients eat food and it doesn't go down, it begins to stretch out the bottom of the esophagus. And so the bottom of their esophagus is actually a pouch. And that's called achalasia. Then the last kind of dysphagia is called functional dysphagia. And there's no physical problem with the esophagus. The problem is neuro neurological. What's the most common cause of neurological dysphagia? Stroke. Now, what are some other ones that are not so permanent? Alcohol. Drugs. Um, someone said coma. Well, yes. Coma is kind of a funny thing. We'll talk about it when we get to neuro. Um, but what, the other thing that can happen is in patients who are, have altered levels of consciousness, like patients who are post-op. You know, they were intubated for surgery. They're waking up. They're coming out of it, and sometimes they're not all the way with it. And, but they, you know, they can say hello, they can tell you who they are, they can count to ten. And so, okay, here, are you hungry? Sure, here, have some food. And they can't swallow it properly. Clinical manifestations of dysphagia. The first one is discomfort with swallowing. Now, some patients have trouble with solids, some have trouble with liquids, some have trouble with both. And then the other one is choking and aspiration. Now, which one is more dangerous? Choking is more immediately life-threatening. Why? Because yeah. you've got a sudden obstruction of the airway. So that's more life-threatening immediately. But aspiration can be just as life-threatening through what complication? We call it aspiration pneumonitis. Now, more commonly you'll hear it called aspiration pneumonia, but that's fine. So, evaluation of patients with dysphagia or at risk for dysphagia. History, and what are the things you want to identify when you do this history on a patient? So, history of, of, um, of stroke, history of alcohol abuse, drug abuse, other neurological problems like cerebral palsy. Um, have they ever had the problem before? Um, what we can also do is do a barium swallow, which is basically uh, a chalky substance that's radioactive. And then you take an x-ray and you can see if there's problems, strictures inside the esophagus. You can do manometry, which is um, manometer, which means pressure meter. So what you do is you put this little probe down their throat and you measure the pressure exerted by the esophagus. So that would also be looking for physical problems. And then finally, endoscopy, where you stick a camera down their throat and look for stuff. Treatment. The first one is behavioral. We are going to tell the patient, smaller bites, chew them thoroughly, then swallow. You know, make sure it's all the way down before you start the next one. That's one of the biggest things we can do. Don't eat too fast. Don't watch television and eat at the same time. Pay attention to what you're doing. Now, how many of you have found that you, uh, the older you get, the more likely you are to aspirate just a little bit every now and then? You're drinking and... Okay. It's only going to get worse. Yeah. Now, if there's strictures, we can do what's called dilatation. How is dilatation different than dilation? 
Yes, it does have an extra syllable. But what's the difference besides the spelling? Okay. So dilation is when the body dilates itself or a part of the body. Dilatation is when we do it to the body. So what you do is you go in there and you stretch out the esophagus. And now stuff can go down again. You can also do surgery and remove the diseased portions or remove a tumor. Or you can also cut back part of the lower esophageal sphincter. We can also do a thickened diet. So if you have a patient who's on, you know, when they, when they want to drink something, you put a thickener into it and it makes it more like a sludge, that they're less likely to aspirate. All right, that's it for, uh, for dysphagia. Now, oh, by the way, when a patient has dys, uh, dysphagia, you really want to make sure that you use aspiration precautions. All right, now, next one is GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease. Now, what does the word flux mean? No. Flux means flow. Reflux means backwards flow. So what we've got is backwards flow from the stomach into the esophagus. Now, is that the way that stuff is supposed to go? No, it's supposed to go from your mouth into the esophagus to the stomach and beyond. But in this case, we're backing up. Now, some reasons for that. One is lower esophageal um, sphincter relaxation. That sphincter is supposed to stay closed, except when you swallow, so that whatever's in the stomach doesn't come back up. So that's one possible cause. If, if it relaxes, it allows whatever's in the stomach to come back up. That can be in the form of um, just acid, or it can actually be food. Have you ever gurped before? GURP is a productive burp. Oh. Oh. Yeah. The, uh, now, if it's acidic, we call it a GURP. If it's just food with no acidity, that's called water brash. I didn't make that up. I did make up the GURP. Now, you can also have lower esophageal sphincter defects. The most common one is called a hiatal hernia. And there's several different ways that hiatal hernias can manifest. But basically, the lower esophageal sphincter just doesn't work right. And then the last one is delayed gastric emptying. Basically, the stomach is slow. So instead of pushing it on down into the duodenum, some of it gets pushed back up just because there's more stuff in it than there's supposed to be. That can be made worse by morbid obesity, or any obesity for that matter. Now, cha morphologic changes. These are changes in the esophagus that can occur as a result of GERD. Now, the most important thing here is the symptoms do not correlate to the damage. You can have a patient who has very mild heartburn and has tons of damage versus someone else who has very severe symptoms, but there's very little actual damage done to their esophagus. So I guess that person would be a wuss and the other person would be strong. But yeah, anyway. The most important thing to remember is that symptoms do not correlate to damage. Now, you have to stick a camera down their throat and look. Well, the gastroenterologist would do that. You can, but you're not going to. All right, now, what we would like to, for there to be is no damage. 
and most people who have GERD have little to no damage. Um, over time, though, GERD can cause esophagitis, inflammation of the esophagus. Now, just like when a person smokes, what happens to their bronchial cells? They change to something else. What's that called? Something plasia. No. They change from one cell into a different kind of cell. Metaplasia. Now, something similar will happen here with esophagitis, and that's called Barrett's esophagus. So Barrett's esophagus is basically the endothelial cells of the esophagus changing into something else to help protect themselves from the damage being done by the stomach contents. Now, 10% of patients with Barrett's, uh, Barrett's esophagus get esophageal cancer. So if you have a friend who's always complaining, oh, I got heartburn, you might want to tell them. You might want to see your, your doctor because there's a chance you could eventually get esophageal cancer from that. Now, not saying that everyone who has heart disease or heart has a heartburn is going to end up with esophageal cancer, but 10% of the people who have esophagitis end up with cancer. In that case, um, what you do is if you have Barrett's esophagus, you want to treat them to reverse it, and then usually the risk goes away again. The damage is reversible, but the longer the damage stays, the more likely the the cancer will come. Yeah, the metaplasia is like a first step along the way to cancer. So, right, that can be reversed. All right, clinical manifestations. The number one is heartburn. Heartburn can happen on the left side of the chest, the right side of the chest, the top of the chest, up in the throat. Some people feel like, similar to a heart attack pain, they feel like someone's sitting on their chest. Other people feel a burning sensation. Some people will burp when they have it. It's very easy to mistake heartburn pain for heart attack. Well, actually, it's more easy. Yeah, but you can do it both ways which is one of the reasons why if you go to the emergency room with, with heartburn, be prepared to stay for 16 hours while they rule you out for an MI. Um, also, regurgitation, that's when you bring the stuff back up. Mm -hmm. Chest pain, coughing and sinusitis. Now, what's what, what this is being caused by is when you have heartburn at night, you go to bed, you lie down, the stuff comes up your esophagus and... Some of it goes down into your, into your lungs, and that can cause your cough, or not your lungs, but your bronchi, that can cause your cough. Some of it may go up into your sinuses and cause sinusitis. So some patients with chronic sinusitis, the reason is their heartburn. Isn't that fun? Hmm. Risk factors, obesity, because all that extra weight can push the stuff back up. Um, acidic foods, which are more likely to cause heartburn. And then foods that relax the lower esophageal sphincter. There's a whole list of them. I'm not going to ask you to remember them. But I want you to know that some foods can induce LES relaxation. One of the big ones being tomato products, which is why Italian food is often associated with heartburn. All right. Evaluation of someone with GERD. Um, we can do a barium swallow again. 
we can do a pH study where they swallow a, pr a probe and they measure the amount of pH. They usually do that over 24 hours. And then you can also do an endoscopy and look for damage. Treatment. Lifestyle changes. Don't eat after 7 o'clock so that your stomach will be empty when you go to bed. Um, Acid-lowering drugs. Motility-enhancing drugs. What's the one motility-enhancing drug that we've talked about in the must-know drug list? Well, erythromycin can be used as one, but metoclopramide or Reglan. Have we talked about that one in the must-know? We will. Yeah, we did. I knew we did. Reglan or metoclopramide enhances the motility of the GI tract. And then everyone's favorite, surgery. Now, I want you to write this down. Nissen, like Nissan, but with an E. Nissen. N-I-S-S-E-N. -S -S -E a Nissen procedure is where they take part of the stomach and wrap it around the esophagus to tighten up the lower esophageal sphincter. It's one of the surgical procedures that can help try and control or cure um, heartburn. I had a boss in a former life who had this done and he was like, he's like, I can eat anything now that I've had this surgery. Yes, ma'am. They, they take part of, the bottom, part of the top of the stomach and wrap it around the lower esophageal sphincter so it tightens up the sphincter. If they tighten it too much, then you get achalasia. Yeah, you weren't here for that part. Um, I don't know how much that costs. A lot. Okay. Um, oh, it can also be done laparoscopically or open. But the surgeons who have been, who've been doing it the longest say that doing it open is better than doing it laparoscopic because you have to get your finger in there and feel how tight it needs to be. I don't know. That's what they said ten year, five, ten years ago. They might have changed their story by now. That's, that's ancient history and medical ease. All right. Next one is pyloric obstructions. Um, these are much more common with uh, children, and the most common ones are congenital. Um, the way you're going to assess for that is you're going to feel their abdomen and it will feel like there's a little olive in the middle of their abdomen. The next thing that will happen is that little baby will go home and you feed the baby and anything you feed the baby doesn't come out. It comes out <laughs> like across the room, projectile vomiting. So those, those parents of those babies take their kids right back to the hospital real quick like, what is wrong with this demon child? Oh, they've got a pyloric obstruction and is surgically, surgically corrected. It's like in the abdomen right around somewhere around here. Now, the other cause is what we call acquired. Peptic ulcer disease through uh, scarring of the stomach can do it. Duodenitis can cause, um, can cause strictures of the, of the pylorus. And then cancer can actually just block up the pylorus. So those would be called acquired, typically happen in adults. Uh, manifestations feel full earlier than, pos earlier than we normally would because food isn't going out normally. Pain and distension in the abdomen and everyone's favorite, projectile vomiting. Yeah. It can. Uh, yeah. But it's, it's more common with children because they just, you know, they feed them and then right out. Adults usually feel full and pain and distended so they don't have the tendency to do the 
projectile vomiting as much. All right, um, so evaluation, you're going to look at the manifestations, do an endoscopy, and then um, you can do gastric suction to help relieve the pressure. Um, how would you do ga gastric suction suctioning? NG tube. So now you have another reason why to put an NG tube in. Treat peptic ulcer disease if that's what's causing it. Surgery to, to uh, open up the sphincter or the pylorus. And then also TPN. What is TPN? Total parenteral nutrition. Why would we give TPN to someone like this? Because yeah, whatever you put in that stomach is coming back up. So they need to have some nutrition. So yes, they can give TPN to babies. So that's just temporary until you can, until you can correct the obstruction.